Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Well, good evening and welcome, everybody. My name is Martin de Sterk. I'm with the School of Physics and I'm the director of IPOS, the Institute for, for Photonics and Optical Science here at the university. Um, I'd like to begin uh, by acknowledging and paying respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet tonight, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands uh, that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of the country. So welcome to the 2019 Peter Domachuk Lecture, which is organized by jointly by the School of Physics, IPOLS, and Sydney Ideas. I'd like to start by saying a few things about Peter Domachuk. Um, the facts first, he was an undergraduate student here at the university, finishing with a um, honors degree in physics. He then continued to do a physics PhD, and after two years in the US, he returned to the University of Sydney on a government fellowship. Peter died tragically in early 2012. Um, and the biannual Peter Domachuk lectures, of which this is one, uh, are given in, in, his, in his memory by world-leading experimental scientists such as tonight's speaker. Um, I'd like to thank Peter's father, Paul Domachuk, and also Katrina Drake for making these events possible. To give you an idea of Peter the person, I reached out to some of his close friends, one of whom is Shelley Wickham, who pointed to his dedication and passion for science, that he was driven by the thrill of discovery, and that his sometimes gruff exterior um, hid a gentle and caring person. He had a healthy distrust of authority, and I would agree with that, and a willingness to go his own way, and I can agree with that too. Um, Another friend, Steve Manos, commented that Pete, as we say with a smirk, um, sat somewhere between mad creative genius with a thread of belligerence and very appropriate. He was one of these people who had a talent for science, for investigation and for storytelling, always able to commu communicate complex ideas in a digestible form. And those traits and imagination and knowledge that came with them went beyond the lab and into other interests in travel, music, food, and the world general. Okay, then a few words about Chris. Um, he is a professor of, um, uh, it, at the University of Maryland in, in, in the US, and he's one of the world's leading quantum scientists and technologists. He has published widely in the area and has started a company. His CV is very impressive and long, so let me just pick out some highlights. He's a member of the United States uh, National Academy of Sciences and has won several prizes, including the Isidore Rabi Prize, the International Quantum Communication Award, Presidential Early Career Award, and the Arthur Shallow Prize. Let me also just give a few words about Professor Marianne Large, um, who has a background in optics and polymer optical fibers, and she quite literally wrote the book on the subject. Um, more recently, her interests have shifted more towards 
interaction between industry and academia. All right, and I will now invite Chris Professor Monroe to give his presentation a new light on quantum computing. Uh, Martin, thank you uh, for the kind introduction and uh, also Ben for having me here. And of course, I'd like to thank the Domachuk family for endowing this, uh, this uh, lecture series. I, I can see by the uh, list of scientists you brought in here that I, I have, uh, <laughs> I'm a, it's a tough act to follow. Um, it, it's, it's a great pleasure and honor to be here, not only to give this uh, uh, Domachuk lecture, but also to tell you about a field that um, is, is, is in the news quite a bit these days, that is quantum computing. And the connection to optics you'll see comes in the form of a system that we use to build this computer. And uh, it's based on individual atoms, and I'll, and I'll get into that in a minute. Um, but this is a topic that is confounding to many uh, because uh, quantum physics itself is confounding to many. And I, I feel that in order to talk about it, I want to sort of define terms, what it means for uh, a system to behave quantum um, and how we, how, how we can maybe tap into new opportunities that this, this uh, theory gives us. So, so I, I want to step back and consider the, the idea of computing in general, especially in, in the 20th century, as we uh, saw the ability to build machines based on silicon transistors in the end. Um, but th this was uh, largely given by some very important theoretical groundwork in the mid 20th century, um, Alan Turing and Claude Shannon in particular. And if you haven't heard these names, uh, Turing in a sense, uh, gave the complete theory of what a computer should do. But he, he didn't show how to build one, but he showed what you need. And he had this idea that you needed uh, some type of a memory device and some way to flip information in that memory device. Um, and he, he, he thought of computers abstractly in terms of bits. And we all, we all know that bits, zeros and ones, are the fundamental unit of information. This was largely codified by Claude Shannon, another theorist, and you know, neither of them really, um, I mean, uh, Turing and Shannon were involved in the building of the computers, but they were, they were really abstracting the idea of what computing meant. And that's really important because the concept of a computer should be independent of the hardware that it's based on. And that, that was something that really wasn't realized. And now that there's, there's this very general idea um, we physicists and engineers and chemists and so forth can look for hardware that will fit the bill. And that's certainly what happened after uh, the, these two gentlemen introduced the field. And uh, in, in, the mid, in the mid 20th century, we had the advent of vacuum tube computers. You might know some of these. These are just three representatives uh, from, from the United Kingdom, from the United States, and from the Soviet Union, all based on uh, vacuum tube elements that were not very well behaved. In fact, these, these machines had many thousands of these vacuum tubes, and the vacuum tubes are like light bulbs. They break a lot. Uh, and so these systems didn't run very well. Um, well, again, computing is independent of the hardware. And at the time, 
there was uh, another advent in, in the physics and engineering and computing business. Um, and this is the development of the solid state transistor. And this picture actually looks even worse than that one. Um, yeah, uh, physicists love this. Um, it, it, it's a wonderful physics experiment. This device, um, it has three wires. One wire goes through this piece of glass, and the other two wires you can't really see. And there's a, the, the, the important part of this is right here, this junction. There's a gold leaf on this piece of glass, and this thing is a piece of germanium, which is a semiconductor. Um, when all is said and done, when you apply a current down here, you can control that current. That's basically what a transistor does. And with that device, it can, in principle, replace the vacuum tube, but not like this. And it took a long time to, to really engineer this. And this is basically the same type of a device that we have in our smartphones now. Of course, our smartphones have billions of these things, and they've been miniaturized. Uh, and, and that itself is a wonderful story that took many decades. Um, so. Uh, the, the miniaturization of transistors wasn't really foreseen at this time. Um, and I think there's a lot of parallels between what we're going through now in a new type of computing compared to what happened you know, 70, 60, and 70 years ago. So what I'm going to talk about next, in a sense, motivates the need for quantum computing as an example. And what I'm going to talk about next is Moore's Law, and you've all heard about Moore's Law. It's related to solid state transistors, of course. Fast forward 30, 30 years after the birth of the transistor, and we see that there's this exponential uh, rise in the number of transistors on a given processor. And so this is a, this is a log linear plot. So the year is plotted here, and you can see a factor of 10 is every division. And we're, uh, for the last several decades, um, this, this, this um, this exponential growth really is what led to the information age and, and bringing computers everywhere. It became a commodity, uh, uh, and, and you know, this is this, this, this very large-scale integration, shrinking down transistors, um, is really the growth uh, behind the economy in the last 30 or 40 years. Now, you'll notice in this plot, um, it's, it seems to be tapering off a little bit in the last few years, and we know why, and it, it's a very simple reason. You can't simply put lots of transistors on a chip and make the chip bigger. The problem is you have to connect them, and the wires get in the way, they get hot, and actually the speed of light is finite. It takes a while, it takes longer and longer, so you can't continue growing. So what we do, of course, is make the transistors smaller, and we pack more. Well, if you make them too small, they're the size of individual molecules. And then it's very hard to get them smaller. I, I, you can make them size of individual atoms, I guess. But beyond that, it's very hard to, sh to, 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 to get more efficiency out of it. So we all know Moore's law is eventually going to end. And not, it's not today. Maybe not even in 10 years. There will still be growth. But we need a new mode of computing to keep the growth going. And there are many possibilities out there. And quantum is but one of them. Now, with this lead up to, from Moore's Law, I, uh, I, I want to quote Richard Feynman, who is a well-known American physicist, one of the uh, really uh, central figures in, in uh, quantum mechanics applied to electrodynamics. Um, and he, he was a, a theorist, but also a tinkerer. He liked, he liked tech. He liked to keep 
on top of what, what, what's the latest and greatest, especially in terms of miniaturizing things. And he, of course, knew about the solid-state transistor, and it's getting smaller. And he also knew that because it's a solid-state transistor, we can imagine shrinking it down to individual atomic scale. And so in one of his speeches a long time ago, um, it's, it's just a wonderful uh, uh, paragraph here. He says, when we get down to really tiny transistors, and of course it took 60, it will have taken 60 or 70 years to get there. But he said, when we get down to that level, there are new opportunities for design. He didn't know what those opportunities were, but he knew they would be there because the laws of physics at that level are different than the laws of physics that we know in everyday life. When you get to individual atoms, the laws of physics are quantum mechanical, and that's where the new opportunities would lie, he predicted. So, you probably didn't guess this coming into this, but now I have to tell you what those, what those laws are of quantum physics. So, you're going to have a crash course in quantum physics, and it's going to take five minutes. Um, and, and, and the reason this works is that quantum physics, if you've heard it described as being hard, um, I don't like that description because I don't think it's hard. It's... It's confounding. It has a certain weirdness to it for all of us, even those of us that use it every day, uh, even Albert Einstein, who rejected it largely. Um, so if, if you really have to understand quantum physics, you, you, you need to maybe think about that some other time. Don't worry about understanding it. You don't have to. <laughs> they're, they're very concrete rules, and they're easy to write down. And I'm going to tell you those rules. There's exactly two of them, and only two. And the reason this is already um, unacceptable to a physicist is that in physics, we think of ourselves as being the, the king of science, the most fundamental of science. We don't like two rules. We like one rule, and everything is derived from that rule. Like in Newtonian mechanics, you've heard force equals mass times acceleration. That's, that that uh, underlies all of mechanics. In quantum physics, we can't do that. We have two, and I'm sorry, you can't derive one from the other. You just have to live with that. But these two rules themselves aren't very difficult to, to explain, and I will explain them. It only takes a few minutes. The two rules of quantum mechanics. Rule number one, you may have heard this. In quantum physics, everything is a wave. All objects behave as a wave. What that means mathematically is that Things propagate very much like any wave phenomenon does, like this uh, water wave on the surface of a pond, or sound waves, how they reflect and interfere and so forth. So having a wave is nothing new. And, and the thing that's a little strange here is that everything is a wave. I'm a wave. This, um, this, 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 this microphone here is a wave. It can be in two places at the same time because waves are not localized. If you throw a rock into a pond, it produces a circular wave that emanates from the source, and that wave is everywhere at the same time. So you can, so if we describe everything as a wave, we have to allow it to be in very strange states, but that's the property of any wave. When we hear music, we can hear multiple tones at the same time, and our ear vibrates in superposition at multiple frequencies at the same time. So if we're allowing things to be a wave, then we're allowing things to be delocalized. Now, applied to information, and this is what we'll do, of course, in quantum computing, um, this is a poor picture of a single atom with a single electron 
that is in two orbits at the same time because that electron is a wave. Um, and we can represent information in those two orbits as a zero and a one. Now, this is, there, there's a tiny bit of math here, but it's not, it's, it's, it's jargon, but I don't want to skip over it because the notation's interesting. Every, anytime you see a, a vertical line in a bracket, what that means is that is a quantum thing. We're describing it quantum mechanically. Here we have a zero and a one. That's not the usual plus sign, not zero plus one. It's a superposition. They're both there. And these two numbers, A and B, are like weightings. How much zero and how much one is there? Is it a 50-50? Is it 90-10? It can be anything. Okay? In fact, A and B can vary. They can go up and down from 50-50 to 90-10. And in fact, there's a wave equation that describes A and B. I won't get into it in details. It's called the Schrodinger equation. It's just math. Just like sound waves follow a wave equation, it's just math. And you don't need to understand the wave equation for sound to appreciate music. Uh, when you're at the beach and you see waves crashing on the shore, you don't need to solve the wave equation to uh, understand what's going to happen when that wave crashes on the shore. This is actually a very much more complicated wave equation than this one. Um, and uh, it's nonlinear and so forth. So this wave equation basically describes how A and B change. They can be driven by something called a Hamiltonian or energy function. And these are controls we have on the system. And by engineering H, this function, we can play around with A and B. Okay. That's it. Very much like sound waves. Okay, that's rule number one. And it has a shortcoming. I hinted at it. What about this microphone being in two places at the same time? Well, that's rule number one. And that's why we have to... We don't see that in the real world. That's why we have to sort of fudge a second rule. And this is a little tongue-in-cheek, but uh, the second rule is basically that the first rule only works when you're not looking. That's one way to think about it. Um, and if you think about it that way, you can go a long way. This wave equation allows weird things as long as nobody's looking, and it's okay if nobody's looking, because nobody's going to experience this stuff. Um, now, let me complete rule number two. Of course, eventually we need to look. If we're going to build a quantum computer based on superpositions of numbers, we need to look at it in the end. And the confounding thing is when we look at a quantum superposition, um, something very interesting happens. It pops into one or the other state. If we have a single quantum bit, we call this, we call this a quantum bit or a qubit, an extension of our, our classical information carrier. A quantum bit... Uh, when we look at it, it turns into one or the other. That's good because that's what we see in real life. So this microphone's in two places, but when we look, it's only in a definite state. So that's good. So we have to have rule number two. The weird thing about rule number two, I guess there are two weird things. One is that it appears that by looking at something, we change it. That's really weird. And this, th these are things that people write books about, and they lose sleep, and they say quantum mechanics is hard. Well, it's not, hard is not the right word. It's just strange. It's just the way it behaves. The second thing that's weird is that um, the probability of getting one state or the other is given by these weightings. In fact, this is a little details, but um, it's by the, the A and B are complex numbers, and you have to square them. It doesn't matter. But if A is big, then it's a high probability we will see the state zero. So those weightings tell you, this wave is sort of a wave of probabilities. 
Okay, so to me, what's weird about quantum mechanics, one of the things that's weird about quantum mechanics is that we have to use probabilities. Now, you all know what probabilities are. When you flip a coin, it's a 50-50 probability of getting heads or tails. Or when you hear about the weather predictions, it's 50-50 chance we'll have rain. Well, we use probabilities in life to express our ignorance. Even tossing a coin, I don't want to know exactly how hard I tossed it or exactly the pull of gravity or what the humidity is and so forth. So we use probabilities as a convenient way to say, all right, I'm ignorant of that stuff. I'll just average over it or something. Quantum mechanics, it's not about ignorance. It's about you have to use probabilities. <laughs> and so this is strange. And it bothered many physicists because it's the only theory in all of nature that requires probabilities, absolutely, at the fundamental level. Okay. And if you think about it, probabilities, if you really think about probabilities, they're strange. If it's not about ignorance, well, then what's happening? Who's deciding? And this is what Einstein famously said. You know, he rejected quantum mechanics, saying that God does not play dice. And that's what he was thinking. Okay? Well, this is how it works. Those are the rules. That's it. You now know quantum physics. And I'm not joking. You want to do all the math in A and B, that's fine. But these are the rules. And this is what the 99% of physicists and scientists use these rules. Okay, so lots of interpretations. Uh, why are there two rules? What's going on? And, you know, one of them that's very famous that you'll probably, uh, you probably will have heard of is something called Schrodinger's cat. One of the founding figures of quantum mechanics, Erwin Schrodinger here. And he, he, um, he, he thought of this, it's called a thought experiment. And uh, it was one paragraph in a very lengthy and wordy paper. It's horrible reading this paper. It's like 30, 35 pages. Um, but there's one paragraph. He says, if we take it seriously, it can lead to ridiculous cases. And he uses the word ridiculous. Here's his thought experiment. Okay, there's a cat inside of a box. Nobody's observing this cat. That should be a hint. <laughs> um, there's a single atom that's prepared in a superposition of having decayed and not decayed. And you can do this with a radioactive atom, for instance, after its half-life. Probability of decay is one half, one half. Um, and it's connected to a Geiger counter that measures a decay if it decayed. And that Geiger counter is connected to a mechanical weight that breaks a flask of poison that kills the cat, only if the atom decayed. Well, if the atom's in a superposition, then so is the cat. You've, and that's the ridiculous case. If you were to describe this quantum mechanically, we would say that the atom is in the state zero, the cat's alive, and superposed with the atom decayed, and the cat is dead. Okay? So the, the hard part, I mean, the difficulty here is that we don't usually think of the cat as a quantum thing. It's too big. And I, I want to I back up one second and... And remember, I, I said that rule number two says if you look at something, you change that something. That would seem to require that there's a conscious being that is uh, in the room or somebody observing this cat. But uh, in, in physics, we don't have to think about that. And that's a good thing because we don't want to develop a theory of consciousness. But imagine we had this microphone in two places at the same time. Well, and there's no, there's no consciousness around to observe it. Well, if it's just the microphone... Um, the air has to decide where to evacuate because if the microphone's here, there's no air there and there's air over here. And if the microphone's here, it's the opposite case. So the air in the room 
sort of has to make a decision what to do. Now, we can get rid of the air. We isolate the system better, there's no air. Let's say there's one molecule of air, one nitrogen molecule, and it's going like my finger here. Well, if the microphone's here, this molecule is going to hit the back wall. The microphone's here, the molecule will bounce off and say it hits the sidewall. So that single molecule seems to have a consciousness. It has to decide what to do. What we do in physics is we don't give it a consciousness. We, we bring it into the system. We invite it to be part of the superposition. If we prepared this microphone in two places, we can certainly have one atom, one molecule go two different directions. Well, it hits that wall and that wall. So now the wall uh, is part of the system. The building shakes one way or the other way. The building's part of the system. The whole earth gets involved. The whole universe gets involved. So you can see the problem. Pure isolation is an idealization. It's very hard to do. It's what we're going to need for building quantum computers. We don't need a consciousness, though, for rule number two. That's the point I wanted to make. Okay. okay another um, interpretation. So, you know, what, what to make of this? Um, you know, I, I lied to you about having no way to connect rule number one and rule number two. There is one way out, but it comes at a huge cost. And this is an interpretation known as the many worlds theory, the many universes theory. What it says is that when a superposition is measured, there are no probabilities. But what happens is we see, we see one result in our universe, and there's another result. The other, the other part of it is in another universe. And so, again, there's no probabilities anymore, but to test this interpretation, you have to go between universes, and my mind starts to spin because there's, and this happens all the time, it's called the multiverse. So there are many, many universes uh, required here. It's an interpretation. It'll give you the same answers as if we just said, okay, there's probabilities and they, they just happen. Okay. okay, so maybe a little too much background. I want to start to get into how to use this to do something interesting instead of just philosophy. But you know, the philosophy is very cool, and I think it makes, it, it makes the theory behind this type of computing very attractive. It's, it's, a, it's just a different way of thinking. Okay, I mentioned Einstein and the Schrodinger cat type thought experiment. Um, around the same time, Einstein published this paper in 1935 where he questioned these rules. I mean, how could we have these rules? It doesn't make any sense. He thought he came up with a, uh, an example of two qubits Effectively, he didn't call them qubits, of course, but this superposition of two qubits, and by the way, don't worry about the root two here, it just means it's a 50-50 superposition of what? Of two qubits, they're prepared in 0, 0, and 1, 1. So we have a red qubit and a blue qubit prepared in this superposition. Now, what's weird about this superposition is that the red and blue qubit can be very far apart. And remember rule number two, if you measure this superposition, you either get zero, zero, or one, one. Well, if you're on Mars and I'm on the Earth, I have the red one and you have the blue one, as soon as I look at my qubit, I know what you have. If I have zero, I know immediately that you have zero. I know faster than light could communicate the dis uh, could traverse the distance between us. It seems like faster than light communication. This, this is called entanglement. Now, it turns out it's not communication, because if you do this over and over again, it's random. So I will get a bunch of random digits, zeros and ones, and I'll know you have the same random zeros and ones, but that, 
that because of Shannon's information theory, that carries no information. So the resolution of this so-called EPR, Einstein, Podolsky, Rosen, EPR paradox is that, is that information flow is forbidden by this, but there's something connecting these two. That something is codified in the term entanglement. These two qubits are entangled. And this property of quantum systems is what we now know is, I think, the opportunity that Feynman was looking for uh, that, that can give rise to quantum computing. So there's one and only one analogy to entanglement that I know of, and I'm going to put it up here. It's based on an optical illusion. If you draw a cube with ambiguous perspective, uh, the front face, uh, is it this one, or is it, is it pointing down and to the left, or is it pointing up and to the right? Well, it's ambiguous by design. That's sort of like a, a qubit. It's in two states, and if you look at it, it sort of flips between the two, and then when, it, when you lock onto one perspective, it stays. It's sort of like a measurement of a single qubit. The cool thing, though, is that this works for two, two qubits. This is sort of an entangled superposition, because when your mind locks onto one perspective, you'll probably find it's the same perspective on both cubes. Now, if you, you can trick this, I guess, if you want, but... If I, if I didn't tell you about the trick, you'd probably notice that. So, so the connection here is based on an optical illusion. Um, it's the only analogy I know of entanglement uh, in the classical world. Okay, now on to quantum computing. Quantum computing. We're going to put a lot of quantum bits together and do something interesting. And it, to me, it follows a good news, bad news, good news story. The first good news is that every time you add a single qubit, you've doubled the potentials. You've, you've doubled the possibilities. So with two qubits, there are four possibilities. There are four two-bit two -bit numbers. With three qubits, there are eight. With four, there are 16, 32, and so forth. So this is an example of three qubits. We have eight possibilities and eight weightings, and they follow a wave equation. We can control them. This is sort of a black box version of parallel processing. It's like having a parallel processor that can compute lots of things with only one device. So that's huge news because as every time you add a qubit, you've doubled the space. That's an inherent exponential scaling. Right? It's what, what we can maybe use to go beyond Moore's law. And when you think about three qubits, that's not a big deal, only eight states. But if you imagine 300 qubits, there are two to the 300 possibilities. Now, two to the, why did I pick that number? Because two to the 300 is about 10 to the 90 or something like that. That's more than the number of atoms in the universe. We're never going to be able to store that amount of information, ever, on classical hardware. But with just 300 atoms or 300 electrons in principle, we can somehow get access to doing something on all those qubits. Now, I chose my words very carefully because... We can't get access to all that stuff because of the bad news. <laughs> Rule number two, if we do this parallel computation, well, what good is a computer if we can't look at it? <laughs> so we need to measure it at the end. And when we measure it, rule number two rears its ugly head, and we get one answer, and the answer is random. So we have no idea what it was. So we get really no information from this because we have no idea what input corresponded to that output. So you might as well just do them classically, one at a time, in series, doing it, doing it sequentially. So that's the bad news. I'm sure Feynman knew this in 1959. 
But there is good news at the end. And this was really, um, I think, codified by David Deutsch, among a few others, and only in the 1990s. Now, this is very hard to depict in a cartoon like this. But if we have three qubits, and these are the, the grayscales, the sort of the weightings, the, these, these, these um, probabilities here. Now, we can allow them to interfere. These amplitudes, these A values, they follow a wave equation. They can interfere. We can control them to interfere in certain ways. And these red dots are called quantum gates. They allow very specific type of interference to occur. Um, and what can happen is the, the, um, these values can interfere in some, in some cases. They can all vanish except for one. Now, those are successful and useful quantum algorithms that can be expressed this way because that one, that one output, when we measure it, there's no more randomness because this is 100% three. That's, uh, that's the, uh, the number three is the output here. And there's no randomness anymore. The probability is one. Everything else is zero. Everything else canceled out. This weird you know, cancellation of, of you know, the existence of these numbers. Um, the trick is what type of algorithms can be cast in this form because this output can depend on all of the inputs. Okay, eight inputs, no big deal. But two to the 300 inputs, that's a very big deal because you can't deal with that amount of information on any classical computer ever. So having that type of an interference and looking for problems where we get one answer is very interesting. So what are the applications? Well... This field really got put on the map in the mid-90s when Peter Shore showed that a quantum computer can factor numbers, sort of the inverse of multiplication. Well, 39 is 3 times 13, but we, we know this through memorization. It's very easy. Small numbers are easy, but big numbers, it's very hard to, fa to factor a big number. In fact, there's no uh, known fast algorithm for doing this. This is also a problem that, that is called hard. It scales exponentially with the number of uh, digits representing the number to be factored. Um, multiplication is easy, but to invert that to factor is really hard. And this is why it's important for cryptography. Um, the, the difficulty of factoring is why your credit card is secure when you buy something on the internet. Because you're, you're letting a big num number be known to the public and only where you want to send it can break the code. There, there are a few types of crypto systems that rely on this. So Peter Shore showed that, well, factoring numbers is now not hard if you have a quantum computer. Um, and so this put the full field on the map because it's a very important problem. Now, fortunately, to factor a big number, we're not even close to building a big enough quantum computer yet. Uh, but the fact that, that, that um, in principle, we could build one to factor numbers is uh, very important. Uh, in, in, in these circles. The way I look at factoring, I, you know, I, I won't get, go through the algorithm, but what, what we do when we're factoring a number like 39 is we represent a state of, I guess we need at least, uh, we need at least six qubits to do this. So six, two to the six is uh, 64. So uh, if you imagine storing a superposition of the first 39 numbers, the algorithm uh, you know, shakes and bakes them in a certain way so that the, the quantum state is a superposition of 13 and 3. And then when you look at it, you get one of the factors. That's how it works. And most quantum algorithms work like that. They go from, they, they go from lots of randomness to not so much randomness and useful information. 
Okay. Now, there are lots of other applications that are a little more speculative. Unfortunately, factoring is really hard. We can't do that now. Um, but these other applications, uh, I think, will happen sooner, but it's not exactly clear how they will happen. And these have to do with optimization. Um, remember, a good quantum computer will produce one answer that depends on all the inputs. Well, look, look at this function here. This is, a, this is a function of two variables. It looks like a landscape, you know, like trenches in the ocean or something. What's the minimum value of this function? Well, I can tell you, you can see it. It's right there. So whatever this value is of x1 and x2, there's the minimum. You can just identify it. But if this function has a 1,000 variables, you can't plot it like this. It's very hard to find minima of complex functions like that. Um, and it's possible a quantum computer can do this. Um, we don't know exactly how to implement it in terms of algorithms. But um, this type of a problem is really widespread in society from, from, uh, from optimization of, of resources, logistics, um, energy, uh, drug discovery, and uh, you know, a, a molecule, what, what a molecule does with its electrons is the electrons optimize their position. They minimize some energy function. And if we can map that onto a quantum computer, we can do some interesting calculations that, uh, that, 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 that allow us, maybe allow us to find better fuels, uh, better uh, catalyzers for certain, uh, certain processes. Uh, suffice to say that um, oil and gas and drug companies are very interested in quantum computing. We don't know exactly where the opportunities will be. But these are, these are all models. The traveling salesman model, you've probably heard of it. What's the minimum path between a bunch of cities where you visit every city once and exactly once? That's a difficult logistics problem called the traveling salesman problem. And the problem is there are too many configurations. There's only one optimum, but there's um, exponentially many configurations. So problems like this seem to be uh, of interest in quantum computing. And uh, if, you've, if you've heard of the, the, the quotation that um, software is eating the world, kind of an addendum to that is that models will run the world. And this was an article that had nothing to do with quantum. This is from the Wall Street Journal last year. Um, and we've heard, you know, artificial intelligence and big data, it drives the establishment of, of interesting models, of the stock market, of weather or whatever. But optimizing those models is really hard. And this is why lots of um, folks, companies and governments and, and, and uh, anybody that's interested in big data and AI is interested in perhaps using some of the tools in quantum to solve these problems. And I've probably gone way too long on this background. And I, you know, I'm an experimentalist. I actually work in the lab to build these things. I want to talk about that because it's, it's very exotic, the hardware we need. So when, talk, when thinking about hardware, I like to quote my colleague, Bill Phillips, Nobel laureate in, in uh, atomic physics, and he, he compares uh, quantum computers uh, to, to, uh, to how we might compare a classical computer to other forms. And he says a quantum computer is more different than a classical computer than a classical computer is to an abacus. And the reason is these two are both Turing machines. We have an abstract uh, unifying law uh, of how this computer works even though they look quite differently. One's a lot more powerful than the other. But these two models of computing are completely different. They have really almost nothing to do with each other. And so I think a corollary to this quote of Bill Phillips is that why should we expect quantum computers to look anything like classical computers? 
So um, I'm, there's a lot of data here. I don't expect you to read it all, but this is uh, adapted from an article in Science, a review article that the authors wrote, the, the editors wrote, on different technologies. And, and the key word here is exotic. These are exotic technologies, superconducting loops of wire. These are hardwares that can exist in two states without anybody looking. Superconductors, because uh, they run current without loss. Individual atoms can be prepared in superposed states. Um, individual dopants in silicon, there's great expertise here, you know, here at Sydney and in uh, nearby New South Wales on, on some of these silicon uh, fabrication ideas. Um, there's more optics-centric qubits, uh, you know, single defects in, in materials like diamond, individual atoms, and, and photonics themselves as carriers. These are all very strange architectures for a computer. And uh, I, I'm, I'm going to talk, I'm going to dive a little more deeply in one particular technology. It's, it's by, by, uh, by some accounts, the highest performing uh, because these individual atoms are pure quantum systems. Um, but the, the optics angle here is going to be we need to control these atoms, these qubits, and we're going to be using lasers to do it. So it's very optics heavy. So this is a uh, silicon chip. It's about a centimeter across. But there's nothing quantum about the silicon. It's just a bunch of electrodes, sort of like train tracks uh, that will levitate. It. Instead of levitating a train, they levitate individual atoms. What you see here is a picture of exactly 80 uh, atomic ions. These are charged atoms and they repel each other. That's why you can see each individual atom here. The reason they're shining, they're fluorescing, is that we shine laser light on them, and you can detect their fluorescence. Um, the reason they're small dots is that they're laser-cooled. They're very cold. These atoms are pretty much at rest. So when you see a picture like this, think of a bunch of, a bunch of pendulums connected by springs. If you push one around, they all feel it. And this is, in fact, how we're going to connect them. How are we going to make gates? How are we going to control this quantum system to do quantum algorithms? So um, there's, there's a little animation here that shows you what we're doing here. We're going to use these um, atoms to do quantum computations by sending laser beams that are focused on individual atoms. Um, so here's an animation of a, a very fancy optical setup. There's the chip I showed you before, where we have, uh, in this case, 16 beams. And the, the 16 beams are, are, are hitting all these ions. The, the first step is to initialize them with a laser beam. And now we're running a quantum gate between these two. And then we're doing some operation on that qubit. We're entangling these two. So you can see that this quantum computation proceeds um, uh, by operating on these atoms with lasers. The, the optics here is pretty intensively difficult and complicated, but there's nothing quantum about it. At the end of the day, we measure these qubits by sending a beam of light that hits them all. The ones that are bright are ones, the ones that are dark are zeros. So it's very direct. At every step here, initialization, the, uh, uh, the algorithm itself, and the measurement, this is done with optical engineering and optical control of the system. So when we, uh, when we first built one of these systems uh, based on individual atoms, it was very researchy in the laboratory and so forth. Um, and this was maybe four years ago when we finally got control of a small chain of only about five qubits, pretty small, only 32 possibilities. Well, at the same time, um, IBM put their system of five superconducting qubits on the cloud, which is great because anybody could program their system. 
Now, we didn't have a cloud. We were a university, but we did have graduate students. And uh, at the time, people wanted to run algorithms on our system. And uh, starting in 2015 or 2016, we just uh, people started bringing our phones off the hook, wanting to run circuits. Now, these were trivial, small circuits. We knew what you know the output was going to be. These are small. Um, but the message here was that we, we had a system that was stable enough that we could run circuits at a very high level, like you would at any computer. Uh, and we learned lots of things. One, <laughs> one of my favorite experiments, where is it here? Um, quantum scrambling. Uh, this is a concept, quantum scrambling, that is thought to occur when you, when you put a quantum bit into a black hole. <laughs> and so, so these were cosmologists that wanted to test a small circuit of seven qubits to, to, to um, allow us to detect whether some process scrambles or not. Um, and so, you know, I, I had no idea what that was at the time, so it was like going back to school. In fact, most of these lines of research, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're all students, and it was, it was uh, re really exciting at a very high level to do different physics. Um, I want to talk about one in particular very, very briefly, and maybe this will get a tiny bit technical, but... Um, there's one experiment, one set of experiments, where we have lots and lots of qubits, but the catch here is that we don't have individual beams hitting the atoms. We have a big fat laser beam that hits all of them, so it's sort of like a, a restricted type of quantum computer. And this, is, this, com this comes from an idea uh, of, uh, in magnetism, where if you have a bunch of magnets to interact uh, and you apply a magnetic field that's in a different direction, there's a competition that goes on. You know, I'm going to go very quickly through this, but um, in fact, I won't talk about this data except the end. This is a string of uh, about 50 qubits, um, and what we measured was sort of the, uh, the, the length of the domain, the largest domain. What a domain means is that we have the same spin state, same qubit state over and over again, like all these bright ones. They're all the same state. Here's a, here's a 0, 1, 1, 1, 0, 1, 1. And when we measured the size of these domains, versus some parameters in the, in, the, in the control function here, we saw sort of a phase transition that was this kink. And the point, the only thing I want to leave with is that we couldn't calculate this because 50 was too many qubits. We didn't know how to compute this, where this phase transition would be. I don't want to say it's useful in any, by any means. This is not a real material. It's a synthetic problem we made up. But it's sort of in the spirit of doing an optimization. Now where 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 does this transition occur? It's called a phase transition. Lots of physics behind that. So, I showed you a picture of the chip with the atom, but what does the you know what does the lab look like? And this is a problem. This is what the lab looks like. This is um, in my field. People are often very proud of this. Look at all the cables that we understand. Um, I'm embarrassed by something like this because it means that you know what are you going to do with this? You can't duplicate it. You can't scale it up. That's no computer, and that's, that's certainly true. In fact, you should be reminded, when you see a picture like this, you should be reminded of those, <laughs> you know, those early vacuum tube computers. Well, the good news is um, almost all of this stuff is optics, by the way, lasers and optics and optics and control. Um, well, if you know what you want to build, we don't need every mirror to have three screws, everything to be perfectly adjustable. If you know what you want to do, you can freeze it, build it smaller, and integrate it. And so without much exaggeration, everything you see here is in that box. That box is only one meter cubed. It's still kind of big. 
Uh, there's some control in the back, but that's not, not so important. The important stuff is sort of in here. It's all integrated, and it's, it's a lot smaller, much better behaved. And these are the systems that, this is the system, the loan system we built at the university. And, and this is very expensive to do this. We had to use, we had to consult with companies to build stuff for us to integrate in here, very expensive. And this is the story of the company IonQ we started a few years ago to, to apply an industrial approach to building systems like this. And at IonQ, this is a picture of system number one, a little more bare bones. There's a lot of electronics, but optics, optics, and optics in there. And systems two and three, you can't see too well in the dark room. There are similar boxes, and, and we built the fourth system just very recently. And so, so this company, it's a startup. We now have about 40 employees uh, just off campus. Uh, and what's very exciting here is that two-thirds of the employees are not quantum trained at all. They're software developers. They're electrical engineers. They're optical engineers. Um, and this is exactly what we need uh, in the field to go forward. Now, INQ has quietly posted some results mostly on benchmarks, on making small quantum algorithms with just 10 to 20 qubits so far. I won't get into the details on this. One of the optimizations we're working on is, is uh, uh, using it to calculate the water molecule structure. Um, and again, we know the answer. It's too small. Water only has 10 electrons. But this type of a problem, doing a molecular simulation on a bigger and bigger system, is very interesting, even though we're starting out with this, this sort of baby version. So, you know, I'm, since I'm running a little low on time, I wanted to show you a little bit of the highlights at INQ. This is a, a real-time uh, loading of the register of exactly 24 qubits. And uh, on this on this chip, we load an atom one at a time, and we shuttle it with electric fields until they're in the middle there, and, and they're kind of a zigzag. It's 24. We stretch them out into a line, focus system. This is all done automatically, now ready to go. Now we can shine laser beams on them, and they're, they're there for, for a, a nice long time to do algorithms. The automation uh, that we can do at this company is something that is very hard to do in, in, a, in a university setting. Um, now, okay, I've shown examples of a few qubits. Here's, here's 24, and it's still pretty small. Um, now, the good news is to scale up, we sort of have many technologies we're going to bring into the fold. Um, Remember the, the Turing machine, we had a, a tape of zeros and ones and a head. We can think about doing this with, with the head being laser beams and the tape being individual atoms that we actually shuttle and move around. And so this, you know, the, the, this is uh, being exploited by many groups in, in Boulder and also in Europe to, to move around atoms. They've, they've probably done the most here. Nobody's scaled up many hundreds of qubits this way, but we know, we know this is coming. And we don't need any breakthroughs in quantum physics to do that. It's all control engineering at this point. Now, to scale up even beyond that, what if you want to do a million qubits? Well, to do anything complex in any, um, I would say, any endeavor requires some kind of modularity. You can't have a million qubits where everybody talks to every other qubit. So, you know, this is, this is a, you know what this map is of all the airline flights in the world. Um, and we have a modular sort of construction of airline hubs makes sense economically that we do it that way. Um, not that that analogy is exact, but in quantum systems, we think about having groups of qubits here and over here, and this also involves optics in our case. Just like the multi-core processor in classical computing, 
the only way to build a bigger classical computer is to have multiple cores. Same is true in a quantum computer. And we have a very high level architecture for doing this where individual atoms in each module here are sort of fully connected locally. But then we can use uh, optical fibers and switches. Everything over here exists. This is all optics, optical engineering. We want to integrate them on chip. I'm saying lots of things that we want to do in the future we haven't done yet. But the good news is we have that path. We know where this path is going, this path to scale. And uh, we're very confident that we'll be able to execute this. So uh, pretty much the last couple of slides here. This one I borrowed from Hartmut Nevin, who is the leader of the Google, uh, the Google quantum uh, effort. It's um, the number of operations here. This is a log plot, so it's a factor of 10 every division. This is the number of qubits you have. Everybody says, how many qubits do you have? How many qubits do you have? Well, that's not all. You, if you have some number of qubits, you have to be able to do some number of operations on them. If you have lots of qubits, but you can only do one operation, that's totally uninteresting. If you have only two qubits, but you can do a billion operations, that's also uninteresting. You need to be up and to the right. <laughs> if you're making a bigger system, you better have a better uh, performing system while it gets bigger. And these dots uh, show you sort of progress in, in the trapped atom uh, space where we're steadily marching up. It's important to go across this red line. Sometimes this is called, sometimes this is called quantum supremacy uh, by, by some. But the point is, above the red line, you can't simulate what's going on classically. And by some, uh, as, I, as I pointed out, this, this is 53 qubits and, and about 50 ops. I showed you the data behind that. Um, but what's more interesting, of course, is to get beyond here in a way where we, where we can apply arbitrary algorithms to, to maybe solve some useful problem. Maybe we need to go really far. I mean, Shor's algorithm is really far away, unfortunately. Um, so uh, it, it's important to at least plot this path. As you add qubits, you need to add operations. They have to be better qubits as you add qubits. Okay, so now backing out, I think I sort of told you a story with the company that it's a challenge to get engineering to bear on quantum. I think a lot of professional engineers might not believe in quantum. Or they, you know, they think it's a weird theory. They're not going to base their career on it. Well, this is why I think countries have banded together to form initiatives to, to bring the workforce uh, to bear on the engineering side, to take this out of the university laboratory and put it in the hands of industry. And so across the world, this is even outdated. This is a few years ago. There are huge investments. These are in, measured in euros, annual spending in euros of, as of 2015 across the world. And you should be pleased to note that Australia probably has the highest per capita uh, investment in this field uh, in, in many different platforms. It's quite visible. I think Canada is also a little bit outsized. So, all right. So I gave you maybe a little too much of a precursor on quantum, but maybe that's the most important thing you should go home with. Quantum is not hard. <laughs> It's just weird. That's a good take-home message. Um, for my last slide, I stole this from the cover of MIT Tech Review. I think it was referring to blockchain, but could refer to quantum computing as well. Maybe there's an overlap between hype and hope. <laughs> Maybe the future of the field is in there. And uh, so I showed a picture of the INQ crew, so I should show a picture of my university research group just a half mile away, the University of Maryland, inside the Beltway near Washington, D.C., um, and uh, with that, uh, I thank you for your attention. All right. So I now invite Chris and Marianne to go on to the stage. 
Okay, well, thanks very much, Chris. That's awfully loud. I'll start talking a little bit more softly. Um, so the slide that you put on at the end, uh, the overlap of hype and hope was um, a good overlap for the start of what I was going to talk to you about, which was the, the Gartner uh, hype cycle. Um, so to those of you that aren't sort of familiar with the, the Gartner hype cycle, it's, um, it's a way of describing a new technology when, uh, when you start, people make these very ambitious claims for them. And, and so as time increases, the expectation gets exponentially larger. And then when you actually start to implement it, you find that, for example, you've built a quantum computer, but you don't have the algorithms that you need to, um, to, to drive it. And this actually happened with um, personal computers. People bought a lot of personal computers because they thought they were a really cool thing, but at that time they didn't have the apps and the programs to actually make the impact on their business that, that they expected. And so there was a period of disillusionment and the expectations plummeted that this was all useless. And then gradually as the applications developed, uh, people's expectations of the technology increased again. So I'm curious to know where on that cycle do you think we are for quantum computing? Yeah, the, the hype cycle over over time it goes up, and then the valley of death, and then That's eventually it. It, it finally finds its growth. Um, I guess by all accounts we're near the peak of the hype, <laughs> hype cycle. So okay, I, so we're I, about to the plummet. Well, some some people talk about a quantum winter. Now, I have to say that the research and the university work government laboratory work is not going to stop. I think there's a huge appetite. So even if you know, in the U.S. in particular, there's a lot of industrial investment in this field, uh, maybe some of that dries up. But okay. um, I'd say I'm not worried. About, on, on the research side of things, I'm not worried. There's just, right. I mean, that's, that's what researchers do. We, you know, we take risks. It's good to know that there's yeah. always jobs for physicists. Um, so that's good, even if they're, even if they're not useful. They're, they're entertaining. So... I'd like, to, uh, I'd like to make a comparison of the, the progress of uh, quantum computers with traditional computers, something uh, that you touched on at the beginning of your, of your talk. So if we, uh, to me, looking at quantum computing, one of the extraordinary things about it is the very large number of different types of technology platforms to, um, to produce the, the experimental results. Um, so I had a, a look at what was out there uh, just in preparing for this, and I found about 19 different types of technologies from uh, the one that you mentioned, iron traps, to solid state, to, um, to uh, quantum electrodynamics, to fullerenes. There's a huge variety um, of, of different technologies. So uh, in comparison to the, the development of what I guess we can call classical computing, uh, that once they got over... Uh, valves, they very quickly stabilize the technology. So the first, what we might call um, really cl uh, classically operating computer was the baby from Manchester University, 1948. Um, transistors were invented in 1947. The first fully tra transistorized computer was in 1955. Um, and the first integrated circuit was 1958. So really in a matter of 10 years the underlying technology had been developed. Um, we're not seeing that in quantum computing. Um, so where do you think the technology is going to fall for that? How's that, how's that going to pan out in terms of? I can get, get in some hot water in the crowd, but 
<laughs> right, right now, I would say there are only two systems right now where you can think about putting 10 or 20 qubits on the table. Okay. And control them all and measure them all with high enough fidelity to do something. Like anything with 10 qubits is not interesting because we can simulate it. Okay. But these are trapped ions in superconducting circuits. And that's sort of why the big industrial might is pushing a lot in those areas. Now, that said, you mentioned the other, you know, where, what about the other 17? Some of them look, some of them have great promise. I think we require gains in materials. There's some, you know, there's a lot of physics that needs to be, needs to be solved. Sure. But these two that I talked about, physics in a sense, I mean, superconductors, we can always use better materials, but the physics in the atom case, the physics is done. We're not, it, it, it's all about the, uh, the you know, um, engineering the controller and let's face it nobody has done that engineering before so um, all right so I'm not I'm not directly answering your question but at the same time the requirements for scaling in a quantum computer are totally different than for classical now once transistors developed and made not just functional but um, you know not like the picture I showed but making it so that it, it's reliable um, temperature swings and so forth then you can just scale them up. You can wire them together, directly wire them. In quantum, you can't do that. And as I hinted, as you make the system bigger, each qubit has to actually be better. Right. And that's that's much more demanding than any classical technology. So it's, the game's quite different. So in any comparison with the growth back in the 50s and sure. 60s, and classical, I, I, I could go either way. It'll either go faster because we're a lot smarter now, mm -hmm. or it'll go slower because it's a totally different underlying principle behind behind these devices that they have to be quantum and it's very hard to isolate a bigger and bigger system so i don't i don't think i answered your question at all um but you know it's so, like you know that's the field that's that's what's fun about the field we don't we just don't know sure so looking into the future again um you recently published an article in scientific american where you said that um there was going to be industrial uh, um, application of quantum computing in the very near future that that uh, within three to five years, there would be industrial applications of quantum computing, which to me sounds amazing, considering where we are now with, with that diversity of different uh, platforms and so on. Um, so I'm wondering what sort of applications you expect those, uh, those uh, to, to be coming up in the next five to, to, to uh, three to five years. Well, I, I touched on it a little bit. And again, this is, it, it's not certainly not a sure thing, but this chemistry problem, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the water molecule is too small, but the ozone molecule, o, o, O3, has 24 electrons. It was only recently solved, 10 years ago, it was solved using classical computers. Right. Um, 24 electrons, that's not huge. Um, now, we have to go beyond ozone, like maybe the, a benzene molecule or methane or something like this. Mm -hmm. Um, and what's, what, what's telling to me is that big companies, especially in, in, in oil and gas and big pharma, pharmaceuticals, are already investing. They have full-time teams that are thinking about quantum computing. Right. And they're trying to adapt certain, certain molecules uh, to, to, a, to a quantum computer. I think given 100 qubits and several thousand operations on those mm -hmm. qubits, that's going to happen within three to five years. And I, I think there's a good bet that it'll be applied to something interesting. It might not be super groundbreaking. It might be fairly esoteric, mm -hmm. but it'll be something, it'll be new knowledge. And that's a base that we can, we can grow an industry on. 
so I'd just like to spend a few moments thinking about what it might like, uh, what it might look like when we move into a world in which we have quantum computing uh, as a commodity product. Uh, so people are famously bad at predicting the future, and the uh, head of IBM once said that there was only a call for three computers in the world, which turned out to be one of the most spectacularly wrong uh, predictions, I think. Especially from a computer company. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's rather extraordinary. But whatever the future of quantum computing, uh, it seems unlikely that, that people are going to interact with quantum computers the way that they do with classical computers. You won't have, presumably, a quantum computer on your desk. So what's the model at the moment of how uh, an ordinary person would would interact with a quantum computer and who is going to control those quantum computers? That's a tricky one uh, at, the, at the end there, but I think the types of problems quantum computers will be able to solve are problems that we ignore right now. We just don't either use bad approximations for or we, or we don't know how bad these approximations are because we can't solve the real problem. So there's almost a culture out there that is ignoring these types of problems and and one thing that's popping into my head is how to optimize some kind of uh, vision, you know, some kind of imagery of your autonomously driving vehicle. Right. I mean, how, how to recognize certain things on there. I'm not sure how quantum will play in that, but we currently don't really know how to do that. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, again, I'm, I don't mean to be ducking the answer. I just don't know. Uh, I, can't predict fair that, enough I can't predict. I can't predict that quantum computers won't be in everybody's house in thirty right. years. Right. Probably not in ten years. But. So in the, in the next few years, it seems unlikely that it's going to be a personal interaction with a quantum computer. Very so, unlikely. Yeah. Um, and I I know that obviously the, the some of the big companies like Microsoft and IBM and Google are very heavily invested in this area. Um, does it concern you at all that quantum computing is to a large degree in the hands of a small number of big tech companies. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah those, those companies you mentioned in particular, um, yeah, uh, we just don't know where this is going. But I, I touched on the big, one of the killer apps is decryption. But there's another app in the security um, uh, community that I didn't talk about, and that is encryption. How to make, how to make data um, inherently secure by the rules of quantum mechanics, because if somebody if somebody eavesdrops, then they've disturbed the system, and you can actually tell their protocols to do this. So, but by having fundamentally secure communication based on the laws of physics, yeah. I, I don't want to say it's, I'm not sure it's scary, but um, that that anybody can use it, and maybe sure. certain governments won't like this. Yeah, <laughs> so I think that would actually be illegal in Australia, because oh. under the under the laws that were introduced by the previous prime minister. Uh, each of the uh, computer infrastructure has to be hackable. I mean, if they don't, hackable. by yeah. by security force. Yeah, it has to be a backdoor so that they can listen in on what they're saying. Interesting. In the U.S., everything probably does have a backdoor, but they don't acknowledge it. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> be my guess. I don't know. I, sh I shouldn't right. comment. Uh, but before uh, we we conclude the session. I just want to say that obviously this is a very active and interesting area. Um, it's also, this, this talk was put on by the School of Physics and IPOS, the Institute of Electronics and Optical Sciences. And the School of Physics is a fantastic place uh, to, to find out more about quantum computing if you're interested. Pretty much all of the technologies that Chris talked about 
including solid state, the programming, uh, optics and photonics. They're all things that you can study and I highly recommend if you're interested in this area and you're a student or a postdoc uh, to look into the school and to IPOS and the collaboration, of course, with Microsoft, uh, which has fantastic opportunities for people to Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.